This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 48, July the 6th, 1983. Before we begin, there is a story I'd like to pass on to you, and uh, it comes from a professional stand-up comedian, but since all of you folks listen to uh, good things on television like uh, Masterpiece theater, you probably never heard it, so I'll pass it on to you. It seems that a woman was nagging her husband incessantly about his lack of willpower, and she was holding up a neighbor as an example of a man with willpower, a good man, and she went on and on about Mr. Goldberg next door, and she'd nag at her husband for his lack of willpower. After all, Mr. Goldberg next door I went to his boss for a raise, and he got it. He had willpower. And Mr. Goldberg, when uh, he found he was overweight, he went on a diet, and he took off 20 pounds just like that. And Mr. Goldberg next door was uh, a smoker smoking three packs a day for 30 years. And six years ago, he decided to quit, and just like that, he quit permanently. So, finally, the husband in exasperation said, Look, I've got willpower. It's just that I don't want to quit smoking and I don't want to lose weight. I'm content the way I am. I'll show you what kind of willpower I've got. I'm going to move into the guest bedroom and I'm going to stay there forever. Well, six months passed and one night he woke up in the guest bedroom and his wife was standing at the side of the bed waking him up. He looked at the clock, 3 a.m., and he said, what's the matter, what's the matter? And she said, honey, I thought you ought to know Mr. Goldberg is smoking again. <laughs> well, with that, we can start to consider some uh, profounder matters. I believe it was last time that I dealt with the study of the voting fraud that led to secession in Georgia and by implication elsewhere. I'm going to continue to deal with the matter of the war in 1860. It has been called the Civil War, the War of Northern Aggression, the War Between the States, but I think the best name for it is the Unitarian War. Otto Scott in The Secret Six has shown how the Northern Unitarians deliberately led uh, the country into war because they believed in confrontation politics a la Hegel, in a thesis, antithesis, leading to a synthesis, and then over and over again the same kind of confrontation as the means to progress. They worked, therefore, to create confrontation. We must remember this fact. They did not want a solution. They wanted a confrontation as the only means to a solution. Well, what few people realize is that Unitarianism was just as powerful in the South. As a matter of fact, in the generation before the Unitarian War, the great Unitarian figure in the South, 
was a man named Calhoun. John C. Calhoun, the father of secession. Secession came out of Unitarian politics, out of Unitarian ideology. Now, there is an excellent analysis of this in uh, just with regard to Calhoun's influence on the world of the United States since World War II. In the June 1983 Washington Monthly, the article by Philip Longman is entitled From Calhoun to Sister Boom Boom, The Dubious Legacy of Interest Group Politics. Now, quoting from the article, Longman writes, Peter Drucker was the initial theoretician of the post-war Calhounical revival. In a 1948 essay for the Review of Politics entitled A Key to American Politics, Calhoun's Pluralism, Drucker sought to rehabilitate Calhoun from what he characterized as the partisan vote of the Reconstruction period. There is almost no awareness, Drucker began, by way of defining pluralism's first premise, of the fact that organization on the basis of sectional interest compromise is both a distinctly American form of political organization and the cornerstone of practically all major political institutions of the modern USA. To find an adequate analysis of this principle of government, we have to go back almost 100 years to John C. Calhoun. His basic principle, Drucker continued, that every major interest in the country, whether regional, economic, or religious, is to possess a veto power on political decisions directly affecting it has become the organizing principle of American politics. And a good thing, too, Drucker opined, for as he concluded his essay, the pluralism of sectional interest compromise is the warp of America's fabric. It cannot be plucked out without unraveling the whole. Within months after Drucker published his article, the Neo-Calhounical Revival spread beyond the province of the Academy and into the mainstream of American intellectual culture. The author then goes on to describe how this thesis affected more and more people, Margaret Coit, Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., and others. And, of course, even David Stockman of a contemporary administration. Now, the kind of uh, pluralism this article speaks about is not pluralism as the founding fathers envisioned it. Rather, it is special group pressure politics. Each special interest works to insist on a veto over everything that comes along, so that every group is issuing ultimatums. Now, of course, this is what the abolitionists did in the North and the slaveholders did in the South, following Calhoun's lead. This is what happened with the Civil Rights Movement, which was a child of Calhoun's ideology. In fact, it comes right out of the Calhoun Revival. It is a part of the entire strategy today of confrontation politics. Now, Calhoun's 
confrontation politics, which was really Unitarianism, Unitarianism and Hegelianism. Confrontation as the means to a solution and then to a new confrontation, to a new solution, to a new confrontation. In other words, perpetual war for perpetual peace. This has become the key to American politics and to the growing destruction of the United States. This is why I said that the war in 1860 could be best called the Unitarian War. Both sides were applying the Unitarian confrontation principle. The result has since then been disaster for this country. Calhoun, let me remind you, was a Unitarian. The leaders of secessionism were either Unitarians or very strongly interested in the general perspective of Unitarianism. Until we abandon that kind of thinking, we have no future in this country except more conflict. Now, an excellent study of this kind of Unitarian politics, of course, is Otto Scott's The Secret Six. That can, uh, to this day, still be purchased from Ross House Books for $15. We only have a limited number of copies, by the way, a very small number. We're not pushing the books because we want to hold the few copies we have for those who are very serious readers. But if you are interested, we will sell you a copy. Just write to Ross House Books, Box 67, Vallecito, California. 95251. Now, Otto Scott, of course, is the logical person, and I believe when he is through with his current projects may turn to the subject of the Unitarian War. Let me add this. Despite what the history books tell you today about that war, it was the most unpopular war in American history. All the unrest and the disquiet of World War, uh, of uh, the Vietnam War, was nothing compared to the Unitarian War in 1860. The Vietnam War protests were mild by comparison. Both in the North and in the South, the war was intensely unpopular. It was resented. Remember, after all, that every state in the South except South Carolina, had an anti-slavery majority. Only one man out of 18 was a slave owner. Two out of three voters, those who had the franchise, were not slave owners and tended predominantly to be anti-slavery. Virginia at one time came within one vote of abolishing slavery. Throughout the South, the predominant feeling until the abolitionists began was that slavery should be abolished, but how to go about it? What was the best solution that would create the least harm? 
The abolitionists did not work for a solution. They worked for confrontation. And the secessionists again picked up the same kind of politics. Today, both the North and the South look back to the events of 1860 and thereafter as a glorious period in their history. They idealize their part in that conflict. When in reality at the time, it was highly unpopular. The majority of people in the North and in the South were not in favor of slavery. But the majority of them didn't care too much what happened. It was the extremists on both sides who created the war. But today, what we get in the history books about that war is mythology. As though it were the great moral event in American history. It was on both sides a sordid, immoral conflict, fought for all the wrong reasons in the world on both sides. Well, enough of that. Now briefly on to something else. In a book I read recently, which I do not recommend, it's worthless, basically, by Roland Evans and Robert Novak, The Reagan Revolution, an inside look at the transformation of the U.S. government. There is this one paragraph which I think is of interest on page 197. A private study circulating at high Reagan levels long before the new president took office put it in graphic terms. According to the study, the British in 1973 picked up intelligence that Leonid Brezhnev secretly informed Eastern European communist leaders at a high-level party meeting that year that detente, then coming into full bloom under Nixon and Kissinger, was a tactical change to permit the Soviet bloc to establish its superiority in the next 12 to 15 years. There were two easy interpretations of this intelligence within the U.S. government. High-ranking military officers felt it confirmed suspicions that detente was a Soviet path to disarming the West, permitting the Russians to move out in front and surpass the West in arms with all that would that would mean. Many civilian analysts felt Brezhnev was simply trying to mollify communist opposition to his policy of detente by giving it a rationale that would please them. Now on to something else. In the May and June issues of the Thomas Jefferson Research Center Bulletin, uh, there are interesting articles on crime and American culture and crime and character. These articles report on research on the subject, essentially by the criminologist James Q. Wilson, Crime in American Culture. And I quote, one by one, Dr. Wilson examines the popular explanations for increasing crime. He says that people who blame poverty for crime can point to the fact that there is more crime per capita in poor neighborhoods. 
but they have difficulty explaining why on the nation as a whole crime rate seems to have been stable or declining during the Great Depression and to have risen sharply during the prosperity of the 1960s. Those who blame the disintegration of the family point to studies that show that broken homes are more likely to produce delinquent children, but they can take scant comfort from the work of other scholars that find no relationship between single-parent families and crime. At the time of the American Revolutionary War, many colonists were concerned that the rebellion would cause widespread crime and disorder. This did not happen. And when the framers of the U.S. Constitution gathered in Philadelphia in 1787, crime was not a serious problem. Although the statistics are rather poor, crime rates apparently went up at about the time Andrew Jackson became president in 1824 and stayed up through the 1830s and 40s. Those familiar with this have tended to blame it on the growth of American cities. But then, Wilson explains, something happened when the conventional theory that urbanization caused more crime uh, could not explain beginning in about the middle of the 19th century and continuing with some fluctuations into the early part of the 20th century, the rate of crime went down. This in spite of the fact that many foreign immigrants were coming to the United States. Factory work was increasing and more Americans were moving to the cities. The more logical explanation, Dr. Wilson believes, an explanation supported by several historians is that starting in 1840 and carrying into the early 20th century a set of essentially Victorian values took hold. Popular literature emphasized the values of thrift, order, industriousness, sobriety, mastery of passions, and a deep regard for the future. Conduct often departed from these standards, but for the most part there was agreement that such conduct was a departure to be deplored, and if possible, corrected. But beginning in the 1920s, or at least becoming visible then, writes Wilson, we see the educated classes in America repudiating moral uplift as it had been practiced for the preceding century. Religious revivals, once led by liberal college students such as Theodore Weld, were now scorned by college education, educated persons as being the province of narrow-minded opportunists. Revivalism became synonymous with fundamentalist Protestantism, and that was discredited in intellectual minds. Secular public schools, so it was thought, had now made day-long Sunday schools unnecessary. Prohibition came to be seen by intellectuals as an expression of the narrow-mindedness of American farmers and villagers. Where once the stress had been on moral development and the decisive importance of the mother's character, now the literature was more likely to emphasize the enjoyable aspects of child-rearing in which fun and play were important. In 1890, 1900, and 1910, one-third of the child-rearing topics discussed in a sample of articles from the Ladies' Home Journal Woman's Home Companion and Good Housekeeping were about K-12. 
character development. In 1920, only 3% were. By 1930, articles on moral character had by and large been replaced with ones on personality development. Therefore, James Wilson concludes, the demise of Victorian morality, the inability of the state to recreate that morality, and the growth in personal freedom and social prosperity have combined to produce an individualistic ethos that both encourages crime and shapes the kind of policies that we are prepared to use to combat it. In the next issue, this is continued. Behavioral scientists have been fond of blaming crime on poverty and injustice. And the article goes on to say that not only does Dr. Wilson refute the orthodox explanation for crime, but he shows a close correlation between the emphasis placed on morality and ethical instruction and the crime rate. Then uh, the Center Bulletin goes on to say a second article, Crime, Bureaucracy, and Equality, by the English scholar Christy Davies, based on a study of English history, comes to almost identical conclusions. Davies, writing in the winter 1983 issue of Policy Review, says that Britain's high rates of crime in the middle 19th century diminished thereafter and remained very low until recent years. And, of course, goes on to say that it went up for the same reasons as in the United States. And to cite just a little more, I quote, This morality, rooted as it was in British Protestant individualism, and in the ideas natural to a society whose central economic institution was the free market, had as its central tenet the idea that each individual was morally responsible for his own behavior. For those who believed in moralism, fairness was seen as the distribution of rights and penalties according to the moral worthiness of the parties." Unquote. Well, those articles are both excellent and do a great deal to throw necessary light on the situation in our country today. Now on to something else. I dealt with the matter of Margaret Mead and Samoa not too long ago. The furor has not died down. In Natural History for June 1983, there is an article by David M. Schneider. It's a long review, several pages long, entitled The Coming of a Sage to Samoa. It is very critical of Freeman. Nothing in this article, which is one, two, uh, two three pages long, three full pages, challenges a single fact in Freeman's book. However, the general import of this review is that somehow uh, Freeman's book was dirty pool. 
it was uh, morally wrong somehow, and uh, the whole thesis of Margaret Mead stands on more than Margaret Mead. Well, of course, there's a great deal more to the thesis than Margaret Mead, but it's all based on Margaret Mead. Well, a similar thing is uh, in the Science Digest for August 1983. That's really running ahead of schedule, August 1983, and I got this in late June. It's an article by Alec Dubro, D-U-B-R-O, The Sino-Stanford Scandal. The uh, scandal, of course, erupted when Wesley, Stephen Wesley Mosier, in the winter of 1980, began to do graduate work as a part of the Stanford Anthropology Department in Red China. Then he reported on things he saw, the forced abortions. Abortions of children as well as the murder of newly born children because of the policy of only two births per family. It's a horrifying article that he wrote. No one has questioned his data but the Chinese government protested it. And Stanford immediately voted 11 to nothing, That's, that is its anthropology faculty, to expel Mosier from Stanford on the ground that he engaged in illegal and seriously unethical acts that endangered his research subjects. The outcome of this was such a hue and cry in the press that Stanford has since had to appoint a special commission to investigate the matter in an effort to salvage its reputation, which I doubt can be salvaged. The charges against uh, Mosier are trifling and have been clearly disproven. No one has contested his data about the enforced murders, the enforced abortions in Red China. Ironically, not only have the facts not been contested, but let me read to you this fact. Indeed, in September of 1983, the United Nations Population Award will be given to the Minister of the People's Republic of China State Family Planning Commission. Qian himself, along with other Chinese, had used the state information organs to denounce the practice of infanticide. However, this award is being given to them because, and I quote, against a backdrop of world hunger, the Chinese program for all its faults is seen as a step forward. So you have massive hypocrisy, denouncing infanticide at the same time practicing it, and our tax money through the United Nations going to give an award for this. So we've reached quite a situation where you can get seriously penalized for calling attention to mass murder, but if you practice it, you are given a world award.
more on that uh, kind of thing uh, in the Medical World News for June 27, 1983. There is an interesting article on the fact of scientific fraud and how Dr. Darcy, uh, who had a string of 116 publications which were fraudulent, is now finally being dealt with. And the various periodicals have the difficult task of restoring public confidence in the research they conduct. Then I had a letter from uh, one of you, from Barbara Piacentini, and I'll read it uh, without giving the name of the laboratory, uh, a university laboratory. Uh, Your comments about Margaret Mead and her fraudulent work in Samoa brought to my mind some true stories a friend of mine told me some years ago about the fraud that goes on in cancer research. I also know of a few instances that occurred in the laboratory when I worked at, uh, where I worked at, giving the name of the university, which were not correct but which were allowed to be used because of stubbornness or power politics on the campus. Someday maybe we will be able to have a chat about some of these things. Well, thank you, Barbara. That kind of thing is far more commonplace than most people realize. Since I uh, cut that tape, I've had people by telephone and in conversations as I've traveled tell me of other instances of the same kind of thing. Then, very briefly, to something else. I'm very grateful to James Bell, Jr. of New Jersey, who sent me a copy of an excellent report which you can get for four ninety five from AIM AIM Accuracy and Media Research Report from thirteen forty one G Street, Northwest Washington, DC two O O five. This is Sojourners on the Path Two by Joan M. Harris. Now Sojourners, of course, is the periodical uh, published in Washington, D.C. by ostensible evangelicals. Mark Hatfield has a relationship to Sojourners. And Sojourners is increasingly coming closer and closer, if not actually duplicating, the Marxist line. What this report does is to give a very detailed analysis of that a line and of sojourner's position. And we see very clearly that a very considerable element of what is called evangelical Christianity is today following the Marxist line. Another item, there's an excellent article in the July 1983 California magazine on the homosexual uh, AIDS disease which is titled Whitewash. And the subtitle, while the number of AIDS victims doubles every six months, gay leaders in California have obscured vital information 
about how the deadly disease is spread, endangering thousands of lives. It's an excellent article. Then on to something else. If you do not get eye on bureaucracy, I commend it to you strongly. For example, the June 1983 number is uh, entitled, Was it Environmentalism or Money which Inspired the Attack on Anne Gorsuch Burford? An Unreported Conflict of Interests. Well, as I hope all of you know, the work that Anne Gorsuch Burford did with EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, was excellent. She actually increased the amount of um, convictions gained. The first quarter, while she was reorganizing the agency, uh, there were not too many convictions. But after that, the number of convictions increased. Moreover, established guidelines were instituted so that instead of a shotgun technique trying to hit all of free enterprise, as had been the case before, with rules that were vague and general, and taking everybody into court that one could, now real abuses were dealt with and corrections were made. But Anne Gorsuch faced a tremendous onslaught. Why? Well, money was at the basis of it. Let me read from Eye on Bureaucracy. There are stories which the media has not told concerning the forced resignation of former Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Anne Gorsuch Burford. They involve the role which activist environmental groups played in her ouster. On the basis of official grant records revealed in response to freedom of information requests initiated by the Conservative Caucus Foundation, it now appears that at least some of these groups may have had much more than environmental concerns in mind when attacking her performance. Environmental groups adamantly opposed to Mrs. Burford, the EPA, and Reagan administration environmental policies in general were virtually cut off during the Burford era from millions of dollars in federal subsidies which had been doled out by previous Environmental Protection Agency administrators. The Natural Resources Defense Council, the National Wildlife Federation, and the Sierra Club are major examples the Natural Resources Defense Council, a recipient of more than $360,000 in grants from the EPA in 1980 and $816,382 on January 21, 1981, before Mrs. Burford was in office, received only $178 from the administration of Anne Gorsuch Burford in 1981 and so on at great length. I think the situation is clear, and I think you need to know uh, these facts. By the way, other policy advocacy groups funded by EPA include Ralph Nader's public interest groups, research groups, the Environmental Action Foundation, the Gray Panthers, 
the Brookings Institute, the League of Women Voters, and so on. Friends of the Earth, by the way, environmental action. You can see why they went after her. Not because of the facts, but because money was involved. Don't put any trust in the integrity of these groups. You ought to be receiving eye on bureaucracy. Write to the Conservative Caucus, 450 Maple Avenue East, Vienna, Virginia, 22180. Or more directly, the Conservative Caucus Foundation, 450 Maple Avenue East, Vienna, Virginia, 22180. And send a check and ask to be on the Eye on Bureaucracy mailing list. It is something you ought to be reading. Well, on to another subject now. One of the interesting books I read of late, a book published in 1979 and out of print now, is by Wendell Stacy Johnson, entitled Living in Sin, The Victorian Sexual Revolution. Now, this book has a very important thesis, namely that the sexual revolution began with the Victorians. The background is not given, unfortunately, but with the Victorian era, it became obvious that the world was moving out from the Christian culture of the past. At the upper level, the uh, aristocracy and royalty had been thoroughly corrupt prior to the Victorian era. Now, however, some reform had set in. The world had become a world of revolution, beginning with the French Revolution. Europe was in unrest. There was some fear when Victoria took the throne that the monarchy itself might go. As a result, Victoria was very carefully schooled to be a model queen in her public relations to give the picture of dignity and morality. Victoria did this very successfully. She herself was not the, not that she was an immoral person, but she was not a Christian. She had a, a sense of relief when uh, it no longer became necessary to believe in the Old Testament. She welcomed Darwin. And she maintained a public image in terms of the new uh, character of the age. Some kind of substitute for Christianity was sought. The forms of Christianity were still maintained. People went to church, but the churches, by and large, didn't preach much more than uh, moralism. Now, as a result of this, two things were emphasized. One was the family. The family began to replace religion. And so you had the Victorian emphasis on the family. 
And at this point, Johnson is on target, although he only touches on it. Uh, as he says on page 11, and I quote, the Christian sexual bond of marriage has always been considered a sacrament, a symbolic expression of faith in the relationship between God and the soul. But love and marriage, the joining of two persons through a sexual union, now became an alternative to that faith. Actually, it became a replacement for faith, unquote. That's the most significant sentence in the book because that describes the Victorian Revolution. The Victorian Revolution was from Christianity to love and marriage. Now, as a result of this revolution, those who emphasized marriage made the family basic. The cult of what some scholars call the bourgeois family came into being. Family life became a substitute for what religion had once been. But there were many in the Victorian culture who didn't buy the family. And so, for them, sex outside of marriage, and hence the title of the book, Living in Sin, the Victorian Sexual Revolution, became the substitute for religion. So, you had some saying marriage and the family are the substitute for what once Christianity gave us, and others saying my personal sexual freedom my right to live in sin, whether it is homosexuality or with a mistress or whatever is my personal taste, this constitutes my faith. Not surprisingly, although, again, Johnson does not go into this, the uh, age was uh, characterized by a love of pornography. The number one pornographic period and place in Western history in the modern era, if not from the beginning after the fall of Rome, was London. And it was because they went to pornography with a kind of religious fervor. At the same time, you had the rise of something else which, uh, in one sentence, Johnson touches on. The great Victorian radical assumption from the 1830s on that the ballot would go far to solve all social injustice. Now, that third alternative is, of course, that which took over in the 20th century. The ballot box is the solution for all problems and all ills. So you had women's suffrage in the United States, and then you extended it to the blacks. Not that I'm saying that this was wrong, but the messianic expectation of this, that somehow this would solve all the problems and mankind would now be delivered from the burdens of the past. And you have the same expectation now of the Equal Rights Amendment, which may again be with us before long. So you've had 
as a result of the abandonment of Christianity that took place in the Victorian era by a sizable segment of society. Three alternate religions, the religion of marriage, the religion of the sexual revolution, and the religion of the ballot box. The salvation of mankind by any one of these three. And all three have proven to be failures because nothing can be a substitute for Christianity. This book, if you can find it in a library, I think you'll find quite interesting. There is more to the book than I've touched on, but uh, you'll find it important. For example, Rossetti's Equation of Sex and Death Dickens on painting, and much, much more. Very interesting book on the whole. Well, let me see. What else? There's so much here. Uh, I think I'd like to uh, quote a few things from a bulletin that I do enjoy reading. John Taylor's Crop News. In the June... 15 bulletin, there's this item on rats. California Women for Agriculture supply the latest information on rats. Rats eat enough grain in one year to fill a freight train 3,000 miles long. One pair of rats and their offspring can produce 15,000 rats yearly. One pair can produce 15,000 yearly. A rat can swim one-half a mile and tread water for three days. A rat can gnaw through lead pipe and cement with teeth that exert 24,000 pounds per square inch pressure. Rats bite thousands of people each year, spreading at least 20 kinds of diseases. Rats will destroy a billion dollars worth of property in one year. Well, I think that's an important fact for us to remember because the rat population in urban centers is beginning to increase dramatically. As people get sloppier and sloppier in all neighborhoods with regard to food, with regard to trash, with regard to disposing of uh, anything edible, the rats increase. School grounds, by the way, are good areas nowadays for rats because it would not be uh, regarded as proper for any teacher to make children pick up anything that they toss on the ground, any bits of food or any leftover pieces from the candy store. Then this also... An accountant has an interesting column in the Tahoe world. Recently, he speculated that there is an economic and business reason why the Syrians and Palestinians will not leave Lebanon. It seems there is a large hashish industry in the part of Lebanon they still control, and the taxes they levy run into the tens of millions per year. The money is, of course, used to finance their effort. I have no idea regarding the truth of this accusation, but once more we have to look behind the headlines 
and more often than not there is some economic or monetary reason for political decisions. Now, <clears throat> this one I liked. It's about goats in Berkeley, also from John Taylor's uh, Crop News. Uh, Berkeley, as you know, is one of our more radical cities in the United States with a very radical city government. Recognizing any editor stares at a blank piece of paper now and then, wondering what jewels to pass on to his readers, a friend out there, manager of a reclamation district, sends us a marked copy of Dow's bottom line for spring 1983. It won't surprise you readers, but the city of Berkeley is attempting to replace most chemical pest management tools. For control of rats, for example, the city council recommends using cats. For spiders, the preferred method of eradication will be vacuum cleaners. For weeds in city parks, city government will rely on residents to volunteer to pull them, have city employees mow them, burn them, or bring in the neutered male angora goat to clean up things. Why a neutered male angora goat? It's small enough to be transferred in a uh, pickup truck and when neutered is docile enough to use in a public area. In other words, he won't butt the taxpayers. A key question comes up. Can the natural pest control advocated by the city fathers in Berkeley meet the same environmental standards met by their chemical counterparts? What is the composition of the goat's fecal matter? Will someone study it at the uh, parts per billion or trillion level? How will the generated waste be disposed of? Is it proper to neuter the goats? What diseases known and potential are carried by these goats? And what effect could they have on humans, wildlife, and domestic animals? What about off-target grazing? Will the use of the goats require prior notification of landowners who have property near the targeted area? Will the goats need to be registered and inspected by a government agency? Will their use be restricted to certified applicators only? What precautionary measures are needed to ensure safe storage and transportation? Will this use have any effect on the price or quality of mohair sweaters? Unquote. Well, I'll go on to another uh, thing in Taylor's, John Taylor's Crop News. This for the uh, June 1st issue. Supreme Court judges. Your editor has some good friends out there who are judges, varying from a notch below the Almighty down to traffic judges. But he hopes it is perfectly clear the item you are about to read refers to Supreme Court judges and has nothing to do with our friends. Chief Justice Warren Burger wants a new National Appeals Court to help with the work of the overburdened Supreme Court. His picture of the nine justices staggering under a crushing load of cases has been widely accepted by the press. One exception is Jim Mann of the L.A. Times, who has looked at the justices' schedule and found that they are not in session for three months, from early to July, July to early October. 
during which time, he reports, most of them end up spending a couple of months at summer retreats or in their hometowns. The court also takes a four-week break around Christmas and another in late January and early February. In between, the justices alternate between two weeks on the bench and two weeks off. On means they hear arguments three days a week from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Mr. Mann concludes his article at $96,700 a year. This is the kind of crushing burden most of us could endure. Well, <laughs> then this item, which uh, I owe to uh, Rebecca and Ezra Hawk in Idaho, the Idaho statesman for Boise, Idaho, has an article of... Uh, a few weeks back, uh, about the Black Hood, Blackfoot City Council. The council is very, very upset because it was so wet a spring. Because it was so wet, people did not need to water their lawns. Their lawns were soggy. <laughs> and as a result, as uh, the mayor said, we're behind on our revenues in water. That's one of our main sources of revenue. The mayor said water department income has been small the last two years because of wetter than normal springs. When there is a surplus, the money is used to fund other departments. That really becomes critical when we've got a major construction project, said Councilman Terry Hawley, and so on. Well, uh... The result is, of course, maybe there's no coincidence, but it's curious. They have new laws on drunken driving. Well, those are all good. But do you want to bet they don't uh, go after all kinds of drivers with more strictness? After all, it's we who pay the taxes who go on paying them because every time we turn around, we get hit. I was so startled when I was in the Washington, D.C. area about a week ago to hear the figures on the number of people who are not paying taxes that I don't dare quote them. It's staggering. What it means is that there are fewer of us paying taxes. And every time we get, well, we turn around, we get taxed again. Or we get a traffic ticket. Let me add, I haven't gotten one for about ten years. But I see so many people, and I know so many people, who get one for what I can't figure out. It was a valid reason, for reasons that uh, baffle me. They're just driving along, maybe three cars ahead of me, and they get pulled over. They weren't going fast, weren't doing a thing that I could see was wrong. But I guess the city fathers need the money. And so we are the ones who get ticketed and who get clobbered all the time. One item that the press did not do much with was the massacre by Hindus of a large number of Muslims. Thousands were ma massacred and another 300,000 were left 
homeless as arsonists burned entire villages. So this kind of thing goes on constantly and we're not informed nor are we told of the facts in India, one of the more evil countries of our time. One item of good news, West Virginia has uh, exempted church schools from any kind of regulation and attack. On the other hand, uh, there is a U.S. tax subsidy for the KGB in Paris because of the 47 diplomats France threw out last April, uh, a fourth were full-time employees of UNESCO. These were all expelled as KGB operators. France is nationalizing the Christian schools and we are seeing a stepped-up attack all over the world against Christianity. This item from Newswatch Alert edited from Seattle, Washington by Wayne Galvin. A high-ranking former Cuban intelligence agent has testified before the New York Select Commission on Crime that he was one of 3,000 agents infiltrated into the United States when Jimmy Carter let Fidel Castro dump 125,000 Cuban refugees on Miami in 1980. Included in the group were 40,000 hardened criminals. The primary goal of the agents was to smuggle tons of cocaine, marijuana, etc. into the U.S. to distribute and raise hundreds of millions of dollars for arms for the terrorists in Central America and Colombia. He estimates that Castro has a total of 7,000 agents in the U.S., trained in terrorism, sabotage, and drug smuggling. Cuba is now being asked by Washington to take back several thousand of the 125,000 refugees it sent to the U.S. in 1980. The State Department has sent Castro a list of 789 Cuban criminals down federal prisons in Atlanta and says thousands more have been detained because of criminal records. This must hand Castro the best laugh he has had since the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Well, our time is up again. I have enjoyed this time with you. I'll be back in two weeks. If I'm able to make it, it's summer now, and I feel thoroughly lazy. It's a good feeling. That's one of the blissful facts about summer. All the uh, drive suddenly is abated and you relax and rest. Well, I hope you have a chance to do the same. I don't think I can. See you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.